Welcome back. You are listening to Three Makes Baby with me, your host, Jana Rupnow, the author of Three Makes Baby and a fertility counselor specializing in alternate family building. Welcome back, everyone. It is the Three Makes Baby podcast, season three. I am here with, I'm, I'm honored to be here with Olivia Montuski. The, she is a co-founder of the Donor Conception Network in London, in England, and also an author of several books that are great resources for parents. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here, Olivia. It's absolutely great to be with you, Jana. We have known each other now. We've connected probably for, it's been a couple of years. Mm. Um, I wanted to tell you, you're, when I published Three Makes Baby two years ago, your review was the first major review that my mm. book received. And it was so encouraging to me. It, it really <laughs> meant a lot to me that you, uh, the words that you shared about it. And because you've had so much experience with this topic and I knew that if you, if it resonated with you and if it made sense to you, that um, I was like, okay, phew, I think I did it. I think I did it okay. I think I did it right. <laughs> because, you know, that's that experience that you have is, is so invaluable of not only being involved in the group, but being having a personal um, a story related to it. And I'm going to let you tell that part. Okay. Well, let me just say that I was completely blown away by your book and uh you know really really wished that I had written it um (laughs) so I I just knew that we had to promote it and stock it indeed DC Network sells three makes baby in the UK that's right and you've been (laughs) a great great supporter and uh it's also I love how your resources really complement the book and we're going to get into that in a little bit but but first I would think I really I've never really heard fully your personal story because I think we jumped in on a professional Mm. level with each other and yeah you know it's it's great to have this moment with you so tell me a little about if whatever you feel comfortable sharing ah yes I'm I'm perfectly happy to share my story um, which I've done many many times before and I suppose it's really very similar to many people, many other people's story, Mm -hmm. Um, except that it took place, you know, the starting point is about 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what makes it different a bit to, you know, to to, to what's happening now. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband is my second husband. I had a child from my first marriage and my husband, my current husband became his stepfather. And in fact, my elder son's father disappeared from view and and Mm. didn't continue parenting him, which was very sad. Um, But, you know, after a while for us being together, um, we decided that we did want to have children together and of course it didn't happen for us Mm -hmm. so you were when you you had your son and did your husband adopt him no he didn't adopt him and it's interesting um looking back on that um 
I'm not quite sure uh, why he didn't, um, mm -hmm. but he didn't adopt him. Um, and to this day, um, my husband is known by his first name to our son rather than, uh, rather than dad. But, mm -hmm. you know, as far as my husband's concerned, you know, he is his, his first son. Actually. Yes. So, oh, yes. You know, and mm -hmm. none of the children have ever been treated any differently to each mm -hmm. other. Yeah. Um, and then how long before you decided you wanted to try having kids? Well, it was, um, it was quite a while. It was mm -hmm. quite a while. We'd been together five or six years. I mean, I think um, my husband was one of those guys who doesn't want to make a commitment too quickly. And I'd been burned by having a failed first marriage. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was after a little while. Um, but then it wasn't happening for us. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure that I was fertile. I'd conceived my first child um, pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Everything seemed to be going on okay with me gynecologically and so on. And for those days, um, I think our medics here were quite forward thinking in that they tested my husband first. Yes, very rather, forward. Rather than me, very forward thinking for wow. the day. Absolutely, yeah, wow. Um, you didn't have a long journey to figure out since you did have the previous no. pregnancy and it all went well, they were able to just yes. go ahead and go straight into No, they, they, they went straight in to him. That's hit. great. Um, did they find out right away? Um, it took about three or four months of various tests, you know, both on his sperm and hormonal tests and so on, until that fateful day when we went to the hospital. Um, and my poor husband was told with his trousers round his ankles, or pants, oh, wow. as you would say in the US, yeah. pants mm -hmm. round his ankles. Um, you haven't got a hope in hell of fathering a baby. Oh. Um, gosh, how insensitive. I don't, um, don't think of, you know, don't think of going to any quacks. They can't do anything for you. Goodbye. Oh, unbelievable. Yes. That is absolutely humiliating and uh, terrible. It was terrible. I mean, we walked out of there and like a pair of zombies, we kind of wandered into the nearest cafe, mm. sat down, you know, ordered ordered a cup of tea as we do in the UK mm -hmm. and thought Christ what do we do now mm -hmm. um, <laughs> oh I mean it's such a yes. you know in, in in so many ways we haven't made progress with regard to what you the scene you just described yes, indeed I, <laughs> I am aware of that yeah that's a whole nother yes it was topic we could get into but absolutely oh, I'm so sorry horrendous absolutely mm -hmm. horrendous Mm -hmm. Now, it so happened that I worked for, um, well, a branch of the UK health service that doesn't exist any longer, but it was called a community health council, and it was attached to a health district, so that's several hospitals all together and so on, and community services, and it was to help the public use health services, mm -hmm. and that way... I knew about 
people offering donor conception in my area. It was okay. the only way I got to know about it. Simply wow. because I was working with, you know, with and amongst health professionals. Fascinating. So the timing, you're in the right time and place. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But, and did it but, take you a while to think about it? Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. It took us, um, well, it took us nine months. Mm-hmm. And what I always thought of as a kind of gestation time. Yes. It's mm-hmm. um, a good way to, to think of it. To think whether this was the right thing for us. And mm-hmm. I gave my husband the last word on it because after mm-hmm. all, it was he who would have to accept having a child that was not genetically connected to him. Yes. Uh, it's true that it seemed with the couples I speak to, many of them, it takes a year to process using mm, a donor before they mm, do it. Mm, mm-hmm. mm. And so I think that's really useful time. I do too. Mm-hmm. Really useful time. And mm-hmm. I, I get very worried when I hear about people who are kind of rushed through, mm-hmm. you know, whereas these days, you know, a doctor may say, oh, well, and the next thing, you, you know, I'm terribly sorry, you can't have a child of your own. And the next thing you can do is, well, you can use donor sperm or eggs and so on, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the yes. wonderful thing we can do for you. Yes, um, and let's start next month and let's yes, go. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> know, so true. Cycle, mm-hmm. let's have a go at this. And yeah. I think people need time. They do. I agree. really, really need time. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. I I think, and there are some doctors that do, I hear they do give that time. They'll say, mm. they'll plant the seed and sort of let them come to the term on the decision on their own terms. But I don't hear much, I don't hear many people tell me my, my doctor encouraged me to take my time. I, I can honestly mm. say I have not heard that once. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not being said, but yeah. I, it's not common enough that people are repeating it to me. So, um, and you know, again, not, not, not to pl- cast any blame or anything on physicians. I think they just, you know, they're doing their job. That's their job. Indeed. So it's just a, a matter of educating um, on the psychological, social, and emotional impact yep. to them. Absolutely. So. Because when you are moving into donor conception, you're doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. It's not having a child with your own genetics. In fact, I sometimes argue that it isn't even a fertility treatment mm. because yeah. okay. it, it's bypassing um, somebody's fertility. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just a different way of having a family. I see. But I, I don't see, see it as fertility treatment. <laughs> it makes sense. I, I've never thought of it that way before. That's, that's very interesting to think. I like the way you first said that. You said that it's a, it's a very different treatment. Very yes. different. It's a different way of mm-hmm. founding a family. And I think it needs to be treated differently right from mm-hmm. the beginning. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I would argue controversially that it actually needs taking out of the hands of the medical profession Mm -hmm. and being, uh, you know, being more treated by people who understand about families. Yes, yes. Um, I can uh, even see 
maybe a consultate where a doctor might introduce the topic, but say before we can proceed any further, and I actually do have one group that does that. They Their patients must go through counseling before the, the doctor mm. will even see them for the procedure. Okay. okay. So that's good. Um, mm. Mm. But that and they should go through uh, some training, like before they even, yeah. Well, I, th I think they need to do something like um, our organization, uh, Donor Conception Network, offers in the UK, yeah. which is preparation for donor conception parenthood. Yes. Where you have the opportunity over a couple of days to yes. really think about what it means to have mm -hmm. a child in this different way. Mm -hmm. And yes. sometimes the best outcome to those workshops is people deciding not to go ahead. Yes, I agree. So the same goes for adoption. So my background's in adoption. Oh, and that's yes. what happens there is that the same thing is some people will decide not to do it. I actually had a podcast guest that decided not to adopt. And mm. it's and people say they feel such shame about that. And I say, oh, no, 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 no. I admire you for knowing that it's not for you. I admire you for looking mm. at this honestly and saying, I don't think I can, I can be the best parent I want to be in this situation. Yep. There's nothing, there's no shame in that. No shame in it whatsoever, whatsoever. Mm. Sadly, very often, couples, heterosexual couples particularly, find themselves doing what the other partner wants them to do. Yeah. Doing it for her or doing it for him. Mm -hmm. um, and not really talking together about the meaning of it for each of them and for them as a couple and a future family. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that myself. My <laughs> husband was happy with one child and, you know, he wanted to adopt and I could get the sense though that he was doing it mostly for me until mm -hmm. we had a major life event happen to us that altered our life. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, let's do this with all his heart and soul. Let's do this adoption. Right. And then I knew he was ready. <laughs> but before yes. then, if that hadn't happened, we maybe never would have adopted because I felt mm -hmm. like the same way. I wanted us both to be all in as much as we could be. You know, you never can be a hundred percent ready for these things. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I tell people that all the time because yeah, many people too. do, they, they want to be, a, they're like, I want to be a hundred percent ready. And like, I don't think that's realistic, <laughs> you know? but I know what you mean that it's so true that usually one or the other isn't all in like yeah and that that can be hard for sure that, that that can be very hard and and sadly it can show itself um further down the line mm -hmm. you know with, with 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 one parent kind of holding holding themselves back holding themselves aloof not allowing themselves to get to get close to a child because yeah. actually they weren't ready to take that on and you talk to so many couples and you talk to them before mm -hmm. coronavirus in mm -hmm. workshops, very intimately, very personally, face to face. Yep. And were you, would you see, did you see this in couples in the two different people along? Oh, the way? yes, absolutely. And uh, as part of that workshop, we, we give them a couple of opportunities to work in same gender groups. So we separate off the men, they go off with a male facilitator and the women go off with a female facilitator. And mm -hmm. it really gives them opportunities to 
talk about the things that they find difficult talking to their to their partner about. Um, and and interestingly enough, in in ectonation, um, it's the guys who will be the genetic fathers of children who find great relief in being able to express their own feelings, whereas what they feel they must do most of the time is support my partner. I must be my partner. They don't allow themselves to feel their own feelings. Mm, So true. So true. We use a test here, Fertiqual. You have it also because it was developed by the European European and United States arms of the ASRM, the reproductive um, organizations. And they... Fertiqual is a quality of life assessment tool uh, mm-hmm. of how people are impacted, impacted in their infertility process. And we measure fall, five different areas of life. What, we, what I've found over giving this test, mm-hmm. I mean, over and over and over and over, was that men, the one area they were most impacted in is the relationship, but mm-hmm. not because they were unhappy with their wife. It was because they felt like they couldn't fix the problem and their wife was unhappy, therefore they were unhappy. Yeah. So it makes complete sense that they would do whatever it takes to make their wife happy mm. in this very, uh, very difficult, challenging, mm. really life crisis for many people Absolutely. that presents during infertility. Very, and, but very. then to have that outlet to talk about their feelings in a place that you're offering is mm. oh, so needed and so wonderful. Well, they give us fantastic feedback on those sessions and and just say how very valuable um, it's been for them. I mean, sadly, we, you know, we have to, we have to charge. We we don't try and make uh, a profit on on running these workshops. Um, You know, we're not a money-making organization, but, Mm but, you know, people have to afford to be able to come on them. I mean, we Mm -hmm. we would like to see them offered a standard on our health service here yes. in the UK. <laughs> yes. I think sadly yes. we're quite a long way from doing that. Because I think most, we are too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most, in fact, of our fertility treatments in the UK take place in the private sector, mm-hmm. uh, not as part of the NHS. Anyway, that's okay. all another story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you were finding that, let's, I'll back up in a minute and yeah. <laughs> go back to the story. So you, um, you ended up moving forward after you, I think you said about nine months, you yes. thought about it yeah. and yeah. you let him take the lead and say, okay, I, I can do this. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, during that nine months, what I had done was find um, a private um, practitioner uh, whom I felt comfortable with and who said, you know, you come and see me when you're ready to do so. Um, so when my husband said he was ready, uh, we were able to make an appointment um, quite quickly. And in fact, I think we probably moved, I, I mean, in those days, there was, there was absolutely definitely no counselling at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, ca- counselling has to be offered in UK clinics now. But in okay. those days, um, it definitely wasn't. And uh, we simply uh, said that this was what we wanted to do. The uh, doctor took a photograph of the pair of us 
and said that he would find a donor fitted with us. And a fortnight later, I was having an insemination and hey presto, I was pregnant on that first insemination. You were. I was. Yeah. Wow. And <laughs> of course, no pictures back then, no profile, no information about the oh, donor. No, no, no. Yeah, nothing. nothing. Just the nothing, doctor nothing, was nothing, in nothing, his hands nothing. entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, nothing. Wow. We know nothing about wow. Wow. our donors. Still to this day? Oh, to, still to this day, because there's yeah. no way of knowing other mm -hmm. than through a DNA test. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, that's sort of moving us on a bit too far. I think. Sure. Well, I think the the historical context of what you're speaking is so fascinating. And I'm actually um, reading a manuscript right now of an, a book that will be coming out next year. And it's, okay. it goes into the historical. And I, I think that you would find it so fascinating because you're you were um, a little bit later than when this one started. He was born in the 40s. And oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so it's yep. so fast. It's fascinating. Fascinating. So, mm. but yeah, you're right. We, we digress. So, <laughs> so you had, you were pregnant and you had your uh, had first child or your yes. second child who is a yes. son and, and is and now. Yes. How old? He will be 38 next month. 38. Yeah. Yes which is so fantastic to have you as a resource. There are so many parents that are being open about it now, talking about it on social media that have younger children mm. to be able to have you as a resource and someone to look to for experience, for wisdom is <laughs> just invaluable. Well, I don't know about wisdom, but I've, I've certainly got a lot of experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I think just to see yeah. the whole lifespan of, you know, raising your child and then now having mm. this adult to adult relationship and just seeing the changes yeah. over the years and how it impacts, you know, what you did maybe early in the early years impacted the later years. And mm. you have always been, well, let me ask you, when did you get involved and began to realize that there was a service needed that you wanted to start something? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I have to say, it wasn't us who took the initiative, really. That came, um, well, I mean, the story is that we opened, my husband and I opened our daily newspaper, because everybody read newspapers in those days, mm -hmm. um, and saw on the inside a huge a color picture of a woman with a child on her knee. And the story was that this was a donor conceived child and that a new storybook had been written um, to help this child and others understand about where they had come from. Okay. And this was, this was the, yes, this was the very first Our Story story book. Except that it was called my story in in, okay. in those days, uh -huh. and uh, my husband and I just went, "Wow, this is amazing!" And mm -hmm. so through the newspaper, we got hold of the uh, doctor who ran a clinic uh, in a city called Sheffield in the north of England, mm -hmm. um, because they had published um, 
this this storybook and okay. it was two of the parents from the uh, donor conception clinic there who had wanted to write this now we were invited by this doctor to come up to her clinic in Sheffield and mm -hmm. to meet with her and the two women who had written the book mm -hmm. and when we got there there were two other families who had also got in touch <laughs> um, so there we were we were five families uh -huh. And basically, the doctor sort of said, look, I think there's need for a national organization and you uh -huh. guys uh, need to start it. Oh, wow. She walked out of the she walked out of the room we were in and shut us there. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to make that decision. Interesting. Um, and what year was this? Um, this was 1993. Okay. Um, yeah. And so we did. I mean, and it turned mm -hmm. out that uh, we had the skills amongst us. We had a very good range of skills amongst the people. Nice. So we, we, uh -huh. we were able to take on the various roles that were necessary. But what yeah. really got the organization going was three months later when the BBC, um, you know, our national broadcasting organization, um, wanted to make a film about sperm donation mm -hmm. and they were going to do a lot of filming in the states but they wanted to know if there was anything happening in the uk mm -hmm. and they contacted they were in touch with the doctor who ran this clinic in sheffield and she said oh yes we've got a national organization just about taking off <laughs> so we were contacted and uh -huh. we went to stay in a hotel in sheffield and over a weekend we spent part of the time being filmed and part of the time um, setting up who were we? Who yeah. were we for? What were we going to do? <laughs> what were we going to call ourselves? Uh, yeah. And, and that's fantastic. A month later, uh, the program aired. It was a documentary. Um, and uh, we had, well, it, you know, in, in those days, they just put a little note at the end of the film saying, you know, contact this post office box if, um, you know, if, if this uh, subject is personal to you. Mm -hmm. And we got about 80 letters, real live letters. 80. Following that. Yes, about That's 80. a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. And there we go. We were, we were off. You were off. Now, it, what, it what was we needed. Had, yeah, absolutely. And what we realized um, what we have realized since then in supporting other countries in getting an organization going is that how unusual we were in being willing to be filmed. We yeah. were, you know, okay. it okay. was only the single parent family who was one of the five families who didn't want to be filmed because she felt that there would be prejudice in the area where she lived. Okay. But the four, mm -hmm. four other families, we were all filmed with our children talking. My daughter um, read, read the storybook, my, you know, my story on film and so on. And we were very happy to do it. And um, we only realized how unusual that was later on. Yes. 
Very unusual because there was so much secrecy that that's why those 80 people wrote to you and said, oh, finally, someone who I can relate to and can help. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And later that year, we held our first national meeting um, in a public hall in in Sheffield, in that same city. Yeah. And until COVID struck, um, we have held two national meetings a year, one in London and one somewhere around the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they draw, oh, well, I mean, the ones in London draw uh, over 200 parents. We have waiting lists because we invite all the children as well and we put on okay. events for the children. We run a workshop for older children. Oh, wow. We have a crash for the younger children. You know, it's a family yeah. event. Okay. That's amazing. That, I mean, just the, this really, it was serendipity. It feels like that this all, this doctor got you together in the room and then this film that was coming out and it just boom, before you know it, you were primed just barely in the nick of time. And then it (laughs) it fueled you, it fueled you to keep going and, and just to serve and to fill that need. Mm. And you're still one of the, I mean, maybe I hope I'm not speaking wrong, but I feel like the most organized um, group in any country that I'm aware of. um... We are the only group that has sufficient income from our members and from the sales of books um, Mm -hmm. to be able to employ a staff. Yes. So that people can talk to us all the time. And they do. That's, That's so wonderful. And what a great model for other, you know, countries. I remember speaking to Camille Guadi at uh, on during International Donor Conception Awareness Day, and she said, yeah. "Does the U.S. have anything like that?" Because I told her about you, <laughs> and I said, "Not yet." <laughs> so <laughs> that's I hope right. So I hope we can. Yeah. But that is fantastic, and that's you know, such a great, like I said, great model for others to learn from, and a, such a needed resource to really around the entire world. People calling from so many different countries that are looking for this type of support and information. Mm. Mm. And so it's just so fantastic. And one thing that I also love is that you have such an experience, you know, with your children being in their late 30s. And by the way, did you have more than to the two sons? Yes, Yes. I had my son. And then uh, three years later, after, I think it took five inseminations that time, I was a bit Mm -hmm. older. Uh, and, uh, and, and our daughter was born. Okay. Yeah. So So she's 35. She is, she'll be 35 in August. Okay. So three children and in 93 and then, okay. So, so she was born in what year then? I'm I'm not going to do the math. (laughs) Um, my daughter was born in 1986. 86. So this was, yeah, so quickly after she was born, really just what, seven years or so, you were involved in starting this organization. And so, uh, she, yes. Um, yeah. actually, I think she was just, because it was early in the year, she was still six. Six. Um, and had you yeah. already been open with the, with your children at that point oh, about yes. donor consent? Uh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how did you know to be open? Because <laughs> weren't practitioners telling the people the opposite? Well, some of them, certainly some of them were okay. saying quite categorically, 
absolutely no need to tell about this. Um, go home, make love, and who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this was prior to egg donation um, mm-hmm. at that time. But um, my husband and I talked about it, and we just thought we cannot live with a secret like that at the center of our family. Yes. It's, it's bound to be toxic. It just mm-hmm. has to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids will sense there's something there. You know, mm-hmm. we'll have to avoid all sorts of subjects like, mm-hmm. you know, who looks like who and, you know, mm-hmm. inherited which talents and, and so on. Um, we, just, mm-hmm. we just knew we couldn't live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true for, you know, the other families that we founded DC Network with. We, we all mm-hmm. felt like that. Yeah. Um, that we just couldn't live with having that kind of secret at the center of our family. And yeah. It takes up, I, if you don't mind, I mm. want to say that it takes up so much energy. Yeah. If you think about it, and yeah. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to spend my energy keeping up with a dishonesty, keeping up with a story that isn't true. Um, because then I can't go on to do other things. And I want that energy to spend elsewhere. I don't know. Maybe that's the weirdest, most practical way to say it. But there's, you know, that aside, I guess, from the morality of it, which of course I was raised, to be honest, by my parents, but then there's just a practicality too. Mm. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I I mean, I couldn't possibly have hidden it. There's no way. And I suppose I was lucky to have found myself a man who's sense of self did not come from anything to do with his sense of being a man didn't come through his fertility oh wonderful it came through actually an awful lot of it through his work who who he is in in his in his working life and you also got a glimpse of the way he embraced your your son Ah, I, I, I was going to I was going to come back to that. Thank you <laughs> yeah. for reminding me, um, yeah. because he has always said, you know, I learned very early that I could love somebody I wasn't genetically related to. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved Dan, and I I just knew that I wouldn't have a problem loving loving a child that I wasn't genetically related to. Mm. Beautiful. So that wasn't a problem for us but I do know it is a problem for a lot of families yes and it helps because if for those that are struggling with that question or even maybe have a child and are still um still struggling there's there's those that are vocal and open and share but then there's those that listen Mm. that aren't out there they're out there listening to this Mm. but they're not on social media they're not talking to people about it this is a place for them to be private and listen. And, and there may be yep. those struggling. No. And so I think it's important that they hear that too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my, my heart goes out to them. Because yeah, mine that's, too. That's a real, that is a real struggle. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's a hard and isolating, lonely place to be. Yep. So to hear stories of families like yours and that they can, it gives them a permission to, to not only permission to feel uh, the way they're feeling and to, mm. to know that it's okay, but also to know that there, um, that there is hope that there is, that there is a way to, yeah, to get there to that place that, that maybe they want well, to be. Well, certainly many of the families who have come to DC network have come 
whilst they were struggling. Mm -hmm. That being open was almost certainly the right thing to do mm -hmm. for their child, mm -hmm. but struggling with their own sense of shame um, and, and inadequacy sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's been very important for them to be able to talk about that and have those feelings accepted and acknowledged. Yeah. Because I think that needs to happen before you can move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it, for us, you and I, we've been speaking about this and you've been speaking about it much, much longer. It seems as if we're saying nothing new, but oh my goodness, I must tell you the people I speak to almost daily that still are hearing the old narratives. Well, I can't call them old narratives. They're not old because they're still mm, happening. Because they're still there. They're still happening. But that they should, they say, they talk to professionals, psychologists, therapists, doctors, mm. agencies all around mm. the world in different places that say that message mm. that you knew you weren't going to follow. <laughs> mm. Even if you did hear it, um, mm. you know, 40 mm. years ago, mm. they're still saying it. They're still yes. saying it to people and yeah. I've had people call me and they're so confused because they're getting such a, a very almost adamant, almost forceful message mm. that you shouldn't tell. There's no reason to tell. It causes the child harm if you tell mm. them. Mm. I know. What, what I know. would you say to that? Is that, <sighs> I mean, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I think, I think it's the old guard and you know, they just don't want to let go. Yep. And I think there's just, it's just, I think a lot of times those that are, those people that are saying that are employed or have been employed or influenced by the, an, an, you know, possibly an employer, the field, a clinic, an agency, a place mm. they worked for mm. so long mm. that they never heard any, another different way. And possibly they don't have a family that's not biologically related to each other. So they don't know. They're just kind yep. of repeating what they've been told and that they've been trained to say I, but they I, don't have I, that real life experience and and they're not thinking about it <laughs> that's what I mean <laughs> they're just exactly. not thinking about it <laughs> they are just repeating a mantra that has passed down over the years they're not engaging their brains <laughs> another way to say it because That's true. <laughs> all, all you have to do is give it a few moments of your time yeah. and you realize I mean you can talk to a child about anything yes as can. long as it's said in an age-appropriate way yes yes and yes and, and yeah and the and, earlier you start sharing that information and building up you know, the, the little building blocks of knowledge over over the years, mm -hmm. the easier it's going to be. It's true. Both for the child and for the parent. Yeah. And that's what your resources teach people. Is it that... is indeed. Mm -hmm. It is indeed. Um, and when I mean, the books that you have that start with those early years are called Talking and Telling. Talking and Telling. Right? That's mm -hmm. right. Those, those are the books that I have written. Um, they start, uh, they're, they're in age group blocks, so 0 to 7, 8 to 12, uh, 12 to 16, uh, 17 up, and then uh, continuing the conversation. 
Um, I think what has been important to me, and I suppose reflects my original training, which is very much to do with supporting parents through understanding something about child development, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. children understand things at mm-hmm. different ages and stages. And yes. So that's the basis on which these books are written. And they are it. written for parents, but with the well-being of the children in mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you make such a good point. There's so much misconception about child development. Yeah. And I wish that I wish that everyone took a course, uh, an extensive course in child development. Mm. Uh, mm. But I think that's so good to, to consider that. I have so many parents that tell me, well, we're not going to tell them until they understand. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, I hear that all the common, time. very common, isn't it? <laughs> very common. Yeah. 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 And so I explained to them the reasons that that, you know, telling them when they're under, there's no magic point. There's no magic place where, okay, now they're going to understand. And when parents get into it, parenting, they find that because I've had some Mm. tell me that they were going to tell and they forgot and they wait, they didn't forget, Mm. but they just got busy. Mm. And then they Mm. think they get to it. It gets to that magic age of let's say eight or nine. Mm. And then they go, oh gosh, now this is really awkward. So much time has passed. And we have this relationship with our children that Mm. if we introduce this now, it's going to feel really weird Mm. to Mm. say this now. Mm. Absolutely. I was talking only this morning to um, a couple who have three sons of uh, 11 and 12, uh, twins and a singleton, um, you know, about beginning to share information with their children then. And a couple of those children are beginning to show sort of, you know, classic preteen signs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of that chat and slamming doors and mm-hmm. so on. And they're going to introduce this information into their lives. And yeah. it's Yikes. really not a great time to do it. No, it isn't. Yeah. And, you know, if you start sooner, it's a positive, you can have it be a positive story where yep. you're um, setting that foundation and they're able to process it in their brains the way that's naturally over time, it's more effortless for them. Um, so yeah, mm. it, it's funny, immediately when I explain it to people in that way, they do get it pretty quickly. They go, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's yeah. like, you just, again, you yeah. just, sometimes you just don't, um, it's hard to see what's gonna happen when you're, mm. when you're just trying to get pregnant, you don't, it's just a lot to try to um, understand in, in an early point, but that that is great. And then what I really love is recently you've been um, you've you've written the book for the teenagers. You mentioned continuing the conversation is well, for t- teens, or is that for the adults? Well, it, it's still for parents. Um, I I only write for parents, although DC mm-hmm. has a huge range of books that are for children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know all all donation types, all family types um, are catered for with our, with our children's books. But the ones I write are for parents, the telling and talking ones. And continuing the conversation is for talking with young people and adults who have known from early years that they were donor conceived, but where parents are thinking ahead um, to, to 
the teenage and young adult years and mm -hmm. helping them prepare for what might be coming, for the changes that may be taking place um, as, as, as their children move into those years. Um, because I know a lot of people say, and you often see on social media and so on, people saying, oh, well, you know, I've been talking to my child um, since, you know, since they were very tiny and, you know, he's six and he really couldn't care less. And, mm -hmm. and you know, continue to say that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, mine's 10 and, you know, and, and they really couldn't care less. Well, that's probably true because if they've been told well and so on and children, children will, you know, they, they take on what, what their parents say. It's, mm -hmm. it's part of the education that we, mm -hmm. that we give to children. But there comes a time when they start thinking for themselves mm -hmm. and they think about the donor conception information in a very different sort of way. Mm -hmm. And in those teenage years, when things are changing rapidly in both body and brain, I mean, the, the, the brain changes that's been shown that happen at adolescence yes. are quite extraordinary. Yes. Um, and I've, yes, I've followed that for many years and uh, there's, some, there's some really good books about it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. They mention, I think, the first year of life, the brain, and the first three years of life, the brain changes and grows tremendously. Yeah. But in the teenage years, it's equitable, if not more. Yeah. Um, the growth is just un unbelievable. Mm. And the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our mm. brain, is really starting to, to, to kick off and just you know, make all kinds of new connections and synapses and mm, pathways. And, absolutely. And, it, and that goes on up until, you know, 20s in the 20s. So, oh, yes, uh, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and indeed, you, you know, it continues to a certain extent throughout sure. the whole of our life. I mean, That's right. yeah. continue yeah. learning. I'm, yes, yes, I'm, yes. I'm getting pretty old these days. And, uh, but I <laughs> consider myself to still continue learning. Yes. Um, it, absolutely. The brain, the brain yeah. is more, um, plastic more mm. than we realized it can continue to grow there's a time at once I think they thought it stopped growing but now they know it can Absolutely. continue now they so know it awesome. doesn't yeah. yeah yay but the weird for that <laughs> the weird thing that happens you, you know in those very early teenage years is that sometimes it feels like kids are going backwards you know mm -hmm. um they they you know they they can become surly and withdrawn and yes. uncooperative and so on and it's yes. because so much is just going on inside their heads. Yes. And yes. it's all part of this transition to moving towards adulthood. Yes. I've heard it described as like almost a brain on fire. Because you, if, you, mm. if you think about the hormonal um, surges that are happening yeah. too. Oh, absolutely. So that yeah. all of that is impacting their thoughts and they do regress. And they're also very, from a psychological and developmental developmentally normal um, psychology mm. in a teen is that they are very egocentric yes oh my goodness very absolutely absolutely and my experience is that boys in particular can become very very private yes at that kind of time mm -hmm. uh, which is why 
it's really not such a great time to break the news um, yeah. about donor conception it's because true. the last thing they want to uh, they want to hear about is you know how my parents couldn't make a baby and so they needed sperm from somebody else to make a baby oh my god yeah. you, you can't even speak that word in my you, you know in my presence yeah and also they yeah. don't um usually in my experience i have a boy and a girl and my boy is 20 now he mm -hmm. didn't that's not something he would have talked about with his guy friends either no that's and right. so he wouldn't have had anyone to talk about it. And he, well, yep. he was my, he was our biological son, but my daughter mm -hmm. who's adopted, she definitely I've noticed in her teens is already more talkative to me, shares more with me than mm -hmm. my son did. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to have, to tell them that information, and then they probably wouldn't speak about it to anyone. They would really mm -hmm. be isolated with that information mm -hmm. at that age. Mm -hmm. Which I means see that happening. the parents are the only people they can talk to, mm -hmm. which is why it's so important that parents make themselves open to that. Mm -hmm. yes. if, if the child needs to, you know, letting them know that actually it is okay um, to talk yeah. about it with, with, with them. Um, yes. Because, you know, kids are being, I mean, they can often be pushing back on parents in really quite unpleasant ways sometimes, you know, really testing the boundaries. But actually they need the parents there to be firm and, you know, and to keep those, keep those good boundaries in place. And sometimes they fear that if they talk about it, that's going to make the parent break down and, 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 and diminish in, in, in some way. And that's actually very frightening. For young teenagers yes indeed it is so true it's so true to remain solid but it's being kind of tuned into them without them realizing in a way you know having your antennae flapping so that um you know you hoping to pick up um on something going on for them and just you know the sort of slipping in how are you doing you know you're doing all right yeah it giving them that allowing them to talk back to you in their own time and space like that's what i found too yeah. is like i love this book and i always tell everyone about it it's called oh i'm talking to your teens oops i've messed up the title it's it's a great book i don't know if you've heard of it talking um, so teens will listen and listen so listening. teens will talk thank you yes favorite message Yes, it's it's my I favorite it book. Well. It, yes, because it, you you've raised teens like me. It's so helpful because it's there's this brilliant. moment when you're it's raising brilliant. your teen that you maybe I'm sure you understand this, where all of a sudden as a parent you don't there's you can't say anything right. Yeah, it's like they want to argue with everything you say, yep. and if you start engaging in that argument with them, you mm. will. It's going to be a tough time. Yeah. So there has to be this parenting shift that occurs in the teen years, mm. and that book was just golden advice because it says, you know, when they say things, mm. sometimes it's best to just go, hmm, oh. <laughs> you know, because I, I remember my really? son. If my, if, yep, mm, really, because if I said blue, he said red. If I said up, he yep. said down. It didn't matter. And you know, mm. I remember one time, like literally, just supporting him and saying something supportive, like a therapist would say. 
And he still argued with it. So I was like, uh-huh. okay, now I can't, my therapy stuff, I have to just say, hmm, you know? <laughs> so it, I, I used it a lot, but that that's really important yeah. too when talking about donor conception is that if they say something that you don't like, or you have a different opinion to share, or it mm. may not be the best time to just go into lecture mode, but oh, instead no. just to listen and yep. say, hmm, yep. really? Because then- mm they will know they can keep opening up in front of you. And what I find, what happens is you're a bouncing board. So they will often, what you're teaching them to do is problem solve on their own Yep. by being there and being their bouncing board. Yep. And that is the best skill of all. You don't have to go in, in there and rescue and problem solve. You let them do it. So you get to observe their thinking and it's quite beautiful. Yeah. It so is. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And and I do think that book and and it's one that covers earlier age groups um, are, are absolute gold dust. Mm-hmm. Yes, for <laughs> sure. So, yeah. And that your book also when I read the continuing the conversation and what I love, too, about it is that it encourages um, people, it encourages parents to uh, put their feelings aside and to be there as that guide and mentor for their child. So the child doesn't, no, sorry, for the teen. So the yeah. teen doesn't feel isolated and alone on this, this, this journey. Um, what mm. specific questions or, or topics do you think scare parents of teens the most? Um, oh, you know, you're not my dad anyway. You can't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. Sure. Terrified, terrified of that. Of that. And what about the search too? Are oh, they yeah, scared of that? Yeah. Yes, I, I think, I think within DC Network, we have we we try and educate them all the time. Um, you know that that searching, um, you know, the wish to search, the curiosity, is normal. Um, but, but yes, you're right in, in the sort of general population of, uh, of, of, of donor conception parents, the idea that children might search, um, can be very anxiety provoking. Is it common for, more common for teens to express or show interest in who the donor is and want to know more at that point? Well, I talk to how many I talked to 23 um, young people um, about, um, about their interest in, in, in their donor and, uh, and half siblings. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority were much more interested in half siblings, okay. particularly the younger they were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <coughs> they had less interest in the donor. Yeah, and so to that, what do you... that came later mm-hmm. on, more in twenties. Uh, those I talked to who were in their twenties um, became more interested um, in the donor. And you know that actually makes sense when we look at development of teens yes. as well, because teens are much more centered towards their peers at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So that would make yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. It does make sense developmentally, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is there that those interviews that you did with 23 teens are part of the book. Yes. Continuing the conversation. They certainly are. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I quote them at many points throughout. Yeah. And uh, particularly towards the end where, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they all, I think, I thought they all quite enjoyed talking about yeah. their lives and what interested yes. them and so on. <laughs> um, but, but what really animated them was the chance to give advice to parents. Oh, <laughs> you know, wonderful. Oh, right. Now I can let rip. <laughs> nice. But, uh, you know, I mean, the advice they came up with was was really, was really, mm. really good. And I think particularly a, a couple of things. I mean, one of the one of the young women said that it was so wonderful that her mother had always been very, very open, uh, you know, right from early on about puberty and sex and relationships mm. and it, generally you know had just been talked about very openly mm -hmm. in the family so it was very easy to talk about donor conception as well and so you know it's sort of encouraging parents to do that from a very early age and um, you know we spend yeah. I say this to you know in the book we spend most of our life if we're lucky in relationship with our with our children in an adult to adult relationship. Um, but most of what we learn yeah. about, read about, focus on is those first 18 years. And sometimes focusing only yeah. on those first 18 years, we, we, we don't do a service to ourselves for the, for the what's to follow those 18 years, yep. if that makes any sense. It's true, no, no, absolutely. We put up barriers that we don't realize. Yeah, um, that's true. So how do that's that mm. leads to the question I wanted to ask you, you, you too is <laughs> how do we encourage parents and maybe it's just by talking about it right now to begin to listen to their teens then then become adults and to see them mm. for the knowledge and experience that they have as well and mm. and also to understand that their experience being raised in in a family where they were donor conceived is different than from the way we were raised. Um, yes. And that sometimes I think that's hard for parents to realize is that just mm. because they saw their child grow up doesn't mean they understand their experiences, uh, you know, 100%. Nope. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do we get parents mm. to begin to, to learn to listen to, um, to them more in those teen years? And that's the shift I'm talking about, by the way, that parenting shift. We shift from being the boss yeah. that tells our kid what to do and being in charge yeah. to being a collaborator almost, to being in collaboration with them. And very, to very much so. Yeah. Well, I think it starts with a parent not needing to own their child. Yes, yes. The child to be a mini me. Yes. Oh, well said. Yes. To be, to be, um, to respecting that child as a person in their own right. Because we have to separate. The goal of parenting Absolutely. is to separate. It is to separate. And that's hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's that old saying about roots and wings, isn't it? You, it you so know, is. We give them roots in order that they should have wings that they can fly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let them be who they are. They don't lose their roots completely, mm -hmm. but they can. They must fly in order to discover who they yes. really are. And it might be mm. entirely different mm. than what we want them mm. to be, mm. because it's mm. not about us mm. anymore. No. Well, I mean, I can see it in my own two uh, well my three children but interestingly enough particularly in my 
two donor conceived ones. Um, they have different donors, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, our, our eldest uh, sperm donor conceived son is a very ambitious young businessman. <laughs> He's really, really sort of go ahead. And, you know, he, he, he's, um, well, I mean, he's determined to make a lot of money in life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, he's still a nice person. Um, and he's actually a dad himself these days. Oh, he nice. has two children. Yeah. Um, and whereas my, and, 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 and that kind of blind ambition, if you like, really is not something that either my husband or I have. Um, <sighs> and our daughter, our daughter is the most wonderful shamanic healer and therapist. Oh. And that is, again, I mean, you could say I'm a counsellor. Okay, well, yeah. it's a bit like me. But mm -hmm. she's gone, she's taken very unusual steps um, in, into, in, into a, a, a different world of, of, of working. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, we just respect them both. Yeah very much and 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 very much love them both but boy they're different from us yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> they're different you know it's um it's so true and I think that recognizing that that shift is happening in the teen years that they're going mm. to be pulling away they're going mm. to be showing their different personality traits mm. and as the parent mm. if the parent can tolerate those exactly. changes that are, are happening and embrace mm. them and acknowledge mm. them, then that is how they can launch their child mm. into adulthood mm. with that sense of um, not only just the but, sense um, of um, yeah. what, you know, kind of identity and a good, have, having a good feeling about who you, who they are, but also to continue the relationship, the bond. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you're so right about all that, Jana, but, I was just thinking that sometimes a parent may need to grieve, you know, the loss of that of that parent child relationship. Oh, that's so true. In my own family, I can see it coming with my eldest son who has a 10 year old daughter now and she is an only child and I can see both her parents are going to need to grieve that relationship in order to let her go. Into, into into teenage and adult years. Mm. Have you heard of the kite analogy of of letting go? It's a, uh, I don't think it's I a have. poem. No. So let me see if I can find it. Children are like kites. You spend a lifetime trying to get them off the ground. You run with them <laughs> until you're both breathless. They crash. You add a longer tail. They hit the rooftop. <laughs> <laughs> you pluck them out of the spout. You patch and comfort, adjust and teach. You watch them lifted by the wind and assure that someday they'll fly. Finally, you keep letting it out. And with each twist of the ball of twine, there is a sadness that goes with the joy. Because the mm. kite becomes more distant. And somehow you know that it won't be long before that beautiful creature will snap the lifeline that bound you together and soar as it was meant to soar. Yep. And that makes me get emotional every time I read it mm. because there is grief along the way. I'm so glad you said that. Mm. 
Mm. That's a beautiful poem. Uh, I've not heard it before, Jenna, but it's really lovely. Yeah. It's so good that you brought that up because of the grief and, um, and sometimes we don't want to grieve. And then if you think about if you're grieving the losses, any kind of prior losses that you've experienced from infertility or, Mm. you know, loss of a Mm. baby or loss of a child that Mm. that could be piggybacking on to the loss of losing them as they grow. And, and so seeing a counselor talking to somebody through those feelings can be really helpful. So it certainly can. Absolutely. I want to um, see, give Mm. you an opportunity to say anything else before I, I really want to end with the description of the book and, um, and give point people to where they can find your resources and more about you. Okay. Um, well, I suppose the only thing I, I would quite like to read just a quote from, from one of the, the young people that I interviewed. Um, and this is, this is 17 year old Adam mm-hmm. who says, the way you discuss a topic will influence how your child feels about mm. it. Treat them like an adult offer options and listen in capital letters. Be ready for emotions. Make sure the focus is on their feelings and not yours. Give your child a sense of freedom, but keep a watching eye. And I thought that that was, that was just so mature from a 17 year old. It is so wise. And I think I couldn't have said it better. Isn't it? Beautiful. I love how you're listening to teens mm. and providing an opportunity for adults, parents to continue to learn into their, t- their kids' teen years and during that really difficult time. I love this description that you provide about it, continuing the conversation, talking with young people and adults 12 years and up. It's an invaluable resource for families with donor-conceived teenagers and young adults applying over 35 years of experience as a parents of DC children, plus interviews with 21 donor-conceived teenagers. Olivia Montuski and Jane Ellis provide readers a look ahead at this crucial stage of child development. Montuski and Ellis describe common challenges and mistakes that parents of teens make while navigating the shifting and sometimes disorienting dynamics in the parent-child relationship. In addition to learning how to engage in conversation with their teens during a time when teens are naturally pulling away Readers will learn more about unique issues donor-conceived adolescents face as they search for genetic kin, take a DNA test for the first time, or begin dating. That's mm. packed with good information. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is, well, yeah. thank you for that, Jenna. Um, oh, absolutely. And they can find those books and resources on dcnetwork.org. Absolutely. And um, yeah, you can and you know, I, I'm on the website now and I'm just click, click through. So if you get to the page where you find books, just scroll down and just see all the links. There's lots of links that will get you to the place that you want to go. Absolutely. So. And it can be, it, it's available um, in hard copy, um, but also to be downloaded as well, which is yeah. probably not more practical for people living in the U.S. Um, it's actually available on Amazon. Some of them are. So I yes, was able to get true. a copy that way. That's yeah, true. So that works. Yes. Yes. Very good. Absolutely. Fantastic. It was so great talking with you today. I really enjoyed it, Jenna. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. 
You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. The Three Makes Baby audiobook. It is now in audio format on various platforms and will be on sale from July 1st to July 4th through Apple Books. Don't miss out. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.